Again, there's an outline uh, in front of you in the booklets. It starts on page 11. So if that's a uh, useful thing for you, then please do do have that open. What I'd like to do as we begin is uh, I want to get you to talk about another question together. Uh, This one you won't have to share anything uh, publicly on. It's just a question for you to ask uh, just one-on-one with one other person. And the question is this, when do you find it hard uh, to forgive other people? What sort of circumstances or situations do you find make it difficult for you to actually forgive the way in which we heard we're supposed to forgive in Matthew chapter 18? Okay, is that that clear enough? What makes it hard? I'll give you just a a short time to do that. I know not everyone knows everyone well and you may not know the person next to you all that well so this is a chance to share extremely deeply with that person even though you don't know them. Uh, That is, I know, so you share to the extent that you feel uh, comfortable but address that issue at least, how is it, when you find it hard to forgive, what sort of situations? Okay, go for it. Okay, I might uh, get you to round off your conversations there. I know I said I wasn't going to get you to share publicly what you just said, and so I'm not going to. Uh, but, but it actually is it's good to bounce around these sort of significant things together. That's one of the great blessings of this weekend, uh, the chance to actually wrestle with tough things and things sometimes that we... Um, we don't always get to because we don't always get to that depth of discussion. A weekend gives you some of that sort of space to do it. So do, do take advantage of the fact that we are away for a weekend, won't you, to, uh, to wrestle with some of these sorts of issues. We're talking about forgiveness and, of course, it raises the question, what is, what is forgiveness? It seems to me it's that ability to, to deal with the insults or the hurts, the actions that are designed to damage you. Uh, Matthew 18, that we've just read, it's the idea of the the capacity to forgive a debt that someone owes against you. 
Now, that's the sort of picture that's raised in Matthew chapter 18, isn't it? When is it hard to do that? When is it hard to forgive someone? There are two situations where I, I find it difficult, particularly difficult. One is where, when someone close to me, who I trust and I've invested in, sins against me. That is, the closer the relationship, the more profoundly I feel it and therefore the more hurt I am. I was reading in the newspaper the other day in Australia about a a mother who was prosecuted uh, because of something she'd done to her daughter. She had a 12-year-old daughter and in order to uh, raise money, she had acted as a pimp with her daughter, prostituted her daughter to over, 12-year-old daughter, to over 400 men. Now, I take it it will be very difficult for that daughter to forgive her mother because that that bond, that relationship is meant to be one of the utmost trust and there is deep betrayal there. But for me, although I haven't experienced hurt that dramatically or profoundly, deeply cutting into my life, when it's someone close to me that sins against me, it is very hard to deal uh, with the hurt. The other time it's very hard is when someone close to me is hurt by someone else. In fact, sometimes I find this harder than when someone sins against me. I remember one day going to uh, pick up one of my kids from school, one of my boys, and uh, he jumped in the car and immediately burst into tears. He was just in primary school at that stage, maybe, I don't know, eight or something like that. And I said, mate, what's wrong? You know, what's happened? And between the tears, he, he told me about how he'd been bullied at school that day uh, by one of, the, one of the other kids in his class and was obviously so distressed. And I said to him, I said, mate, tell me the name of this boy. And he said, oh, what's the point, Dad? What can you do about it? You know? I said, I will find this child and I'll tell him if he does it again, I will break his arm. And he did just like you're doing. He laughed. And that's because he didn't realise I was serious. No, I was, only, I was only joking. It's okay. But, but you, you know that sort of feeling? That, that sense of concern for those who are close to you and that desire to protect them and to care for them. And when someone sins against them, then you feel it strongly. Again, I saw a newspaper, uh, not a newspaper, a television uh, newsreel footage of a man who came out of a court situation there was a fellow had been prosecuted for dangerous driving. He was drunk and he uh, ran over this man's daughter, 18 years old, and killed her. He was being prosecuted uh, for that crime. The judge gave him a suspended sentence and the father was asked afterwards how he felt about it. And he said, my daughter got a death sentence. We, her family, got a life sentence and he has gone free. I thought, yeah, I can understand the depth of the pain and the way in which he doesn't feel that's resolved. Those are the situations I find it hard. I'm not sure what yours are, but I suspect they're not that different, where the pain just eats you up and you struggle to deal with your anger, with your hurt, with your disappointment, with your betrayal. And then, if you're a Christian, 
Then when you're, you're at the point where you feel like, yeah, yeah, I have actually. I've forgiven the person. I've dealt with it. You know, I've really made progress on this. Then you drive by that person's place or a memory is triggered and the anger flares within you again. And you think, what? I obviously haven't. You know, I thought I'd dealt with this, but I see I feel so strongly. Maybe I haven't really dealt with this properly. Maybe I haven't forgiven like I'm commanded to in the scriptures. And then that worries you. You see, because you know you have instructions like this one in Matthew 18 verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. That is, unless you forgive, then you face the wrath and the judgment of God. It's the same in Matthew 6.15 I referred to before. If you don't forgive, if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. Now, can I say, we all struggle with this. We all do. And it is so very, very important, critical, uh, to working out life as a Christian person. Let's think about it together. First, I want to look at the nature of the bottomless forgiveness, for that's what I think it is It's spoken of in Matthew chapter 18. We heard it read. Let's look at it together again. Have your Bibles open in Matthew 18 as we think about this together. This is a strong parable on forgiveness. And Jesus taught it in response to that question that's asked by Peter. Look there in verse 21. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, the rabbis taught that you should forgive someone three times. Right? And Peter, in typical fashion, doubles it and adds one. And so as he asks the question and says, Jesus, up to seven times? You can almost see his friends behind him and him going, you know, aren't I wonderful? You know, I really have caught the spiritual truth here. You know, I'm right. I'm right there. And then Jesus says, no. And it's either in verse 22, 77 times, or it's uh, 70 times 7. But the point is exactly the same, whichever way it is in the translation. The point is, you never, ever, 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 490 times, ever, ever, stop forgiving. In other words, you never stop forgiving your brother from the heart when he sins against you. Now, let me stop there for a moment. Did you pick that up? So when do you stop forgiving your brother from the heart? Never. How can you repeat that with me? When do you stop forgiving your brother from the heart? Never. Okay, you've got that. Well done. Okay, because we tend to forget that. It is a difficult truth to actually take on board. Now, the context is set for this earlier in this chapter where God really announces his attitude towards both sin and sinners. Uh, Jesus talks about the seriousness of sin. So if you look at verse 6, he talks about um, causing little ones to sin. Little ones are just another way of talking about disciples, I think, here, really. He says, if you cause a little one to sin, it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's serious. Verse 8. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. Sin is serious. It excludes you from the kingdom of God. It, it, it takes you out of heaven. 
And then he goes on in verses 10 to 14, and we read about the love that God has for sinners, the seriousness of sin, but nonetheless the love that God has for sinners. He talks, there we see the parable of the lost sheep. One sheep out of 99 wanders away. You go search for it until you find it. Verse 14. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones, these humble disciples, any one of these little ones will be lost. And then the lens changes slightly from there. What if you're sinned against? Right? Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, what do you do? Well, let me ask you, when, when you get sinned against by another Christian in the fellowship, what do you do? Well, what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what most people do, if you're like most people in my congregation in Australia, normally they stew on it. All right? They'll let it fester for a decent amount of time. You know, oh, and the anger sort of build up till they get to the point where they really want to do something about it, and then they do something about it. They talk to another Christian person, not the person who sinned against them, and they share uh, about this with the other Christian person. And generally they turn that person against the person who sinned against them. And they sort of set up a little club, uh, really, sharing seriously and praying about the matter. You know, and, uh, and basically we sort of work out how many people in the church we can turn against that person who sinned against me. And it's a subtle Christian way of payback. Okay? Now, I'm sure you don't do that in your congregation uh, because you are godly and spiritual people, but uh, that's the natural way we deal with sin. We deal with sin sinfully. Right? That's the way in which we do it. No, says Jesus, what you do is you go and you talk to them. That's so simple, really, isn't it? I wonder why we don't do that more often. See, normally what we do is we go and chat about it with the pastor, right? go and see Andrew and get his advice on how we should deal with this sin. And do you know the reason we do that? Because we're pretty confident that Andrew will actually have better advice for us than Jesus. Or maybe not. Because Jesus says, go and talk to them. Don't go and talk to Andrew. Right? You'd save Andrew a lot of work if you just went straight to them and talked to them about it. Okay? He could concentrate on preparing Bible studies and things like that rather than helping you to be more godly and read the Bible yourself. Go and talk to them about it, is what is said. Make sure you do that, won't you? It's so easy not to. And the reason why you do that is because, according to psychiatrists, it's the healthy thing to do. If you go and you see the person who sinned against you and you dump all over them, just sort of give them a big spray, oh, it's great to get it off your chest, isn't it? You feel just terrific, actually. Actually, that's not what Jesus says here, is it? Why? Why? Do you go and speak to them about it? Why? Verse 15. If he listens to you, you have won or gained your brother. See, here is the passionate concern. It is that the person who has sinned against you turns away from their sin and is restored both in fellowship with God and with you. The deep concern for your brother or sister in Christ. This process of dealing with sin in the fellowship is not about you feeling good, but you having them apologise to you. It's about them being brought back into right relationship with God. Okay? It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? So profoundly gospel, isn't it, in the way in which it functions. And how often should you do it? Well, 
70 times 7. If your brother sins against you 490 times, you just keep forgiving him. Keep forgiving him. Keep forgiving him. You never, ever, 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 ever stop forgiving him. So tonight's a very short talk. I'm going to pray now and we'll... Actually, I'm not going to, but... uh, but I could, couldn't I? You're probably thinking maybe he will. But no, I'm not going to. But do you understand though that that is, if we did this, uh, then the task is done. But let me tell you, uh, when we come to this sort of text and we see the extent to which Jesus talks about the forgiveness of sins, our human nature is to try and squish it down a bit. And say, ah, oh, you know, but Jesus was always talking, you know, in extremes, wasn't he, to make his point. And so that's why I've got my next point. Yes, buts. Yes, buts. See, we hear the teaching on this, we go, yes, but. <laughs> but, 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 but. I've got a series of questions that I want to ask about it. Let me tell you what some of the common questions that are raised in relation to this sort of teaching. First one that's often raised, and the discussion about this over dinner table is a good one actually, is repentance required? So do you have to forgive someone from the bottom of your heart, or only if they repent of their sins? And the way this this works is you go to a place like Colossians chapter three, verse thirteen, we looked at the last session. We're to forgive the way the Lord has forgiven us. Okay? That seems reasonable. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. But not everyone benefits from the death of Jesus for the sins of the whole world, do they? That is, only those who have repented and turned away from their sins and put their trust in Jesus get the benefit of that forgiveness. Therefore, if I'm to forgive the way the Lord has forgiven me, I only need to forgive someone if they repent of their sins towards me. Otherwise, I'm off the hook. Right? It's a great loophole, isn't it? But... Let me qualify in just a couple of ways. Our situation is different uh, to that of Jesus in a few respects. Uh, Apart from the obvious, he is God, we're not. Uh, And he is holy, actually, and sinless, and we're not. So it differs in those sort of respects. But also, Jesus is the one who dies for the sins of the whole world, to spare people judgment. As far as I can tell, none of us actually die for the sins of the whole world, to spare the person who sins against us the judgment or God's wrath. That is, we've got to be too careful, uh, got to be a bit careful before we draw too tight a connection uh, between uh, the forgiveness of God and the forgiveness that we offer to other people. We also need to distinguish between, I think, what is forgiveness and reconciliation. Reconciliation is always the goal of forgiveness. Uh, that is, if someone sins are forgiven, the idea is that the relationship be restored. That's the, uh, the, the, the directional purpose of forgiveness in our relationships with each other. But I think there can be forgiveness without reconciliation. But if, say, someone sins against you, uh, they defame you to friends of yours, and they acknowledge that they've done it, but they refuse to do anything about it. It would be very hard to have a properly restored relationship 
a reconciled relationship with someone who has sinned against you in that way and refuses to repent of that sin. I can't actually see how a relationship could be properly restored because it requires two, two, two people to actually commit to that relationship. But nonetheless, I think it is possible for you, if you've been sinned against, to forgive that person in a, in a one-directional sort of way. And there are a number of clues, I think, in the Bible that point us in this direction, a number of points that the New Testament directs us that way. What I'll do is you might want to jot down these references. We won't look them all up, but I'll, I'll read them to you so I can get a, uh, the sweep of it. And you might want to look at these verses in, in context a little more carefully later on. Okay? The first is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. Love each other deeply because love uh, covers a multitude of sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, again on the sort of theme of love, it talks about love keeping no record of wrongs. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Mark 11, verse 25, When you stand praying, if you hold anything against someone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. No reference in that context to any sense of repentance, but the burden on the person to actually forgive the person who has sinned against them. There are other examples, I think, where forgiveness seems to operate or the intention or the forgiving heart seems to go in one direction. Uh, Jesus on the cross uh, utters these words, Father, forgive them. Now, there is no repentance on the part of the people that he's calling upon God to forgive at that moment. Stephen, when he's been stoned, Acts chapter 7, verse 60, he says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. I think that as I read the New Testament, uh, Christians are required to forgive people from the heart whether there is repentance or not. And often actually it's impossible to get repentance from somebody. In some situations you may not even know the person who sinned against you. Um, Say a a masked rapist rapes you and you don't know that person's identity. You'll never get a confession out of them and somehow they're caught and punished for their sin. Otherwise it will be hidden from you. Well, sometimes in, um, say, sexual abuse situations, it can take 25 years for someone to get to a point where they're ready to be able to confront that issue and deal with it. And often in those situations, the perpetrator is actually dead. It's not always possible for there to be that sort of repentance. And does that mean the person is stuck with the unforgiveness and the anger it comes with being sinned against? You know, I suspect not, as I read the Bible. I believe that uh, even when there isn't repentance, there's a requirement to forgive. And actually, if we refuse to forgive, we have the same problem that this parable in Matthew 18 speaks of. Uh, If we refuse to forgive from the heart, then we're in serious trouble actually with God himself, verse 35. 
Another question that gets raised, particularly in this Matthew 18 context, separate question, is do we confront sin or not, especially in a Matthew 18 sort of style? Do we always confront people's sin? Now, I want to suggest, no, I don't think we do. You know, the process, you go and see them one-on-one, you take someone with you or a couple of people with you, uh, bring them for the elders of the church. You know, that, that's sort of... Do you deal every sin? I don't think so. Do you say, um, Andrew, Andrew Cheer, uh, we're going back from Smackago and he says, we're going to go out to a time... I'm going to take you guys out to a time meal tonight, right? So six of us, we go out to a meal, we're sitting around a table, just the six of us, and uh, we order three dishes, okay? Now, my favourite, pad thai, right? But just hanging out there. Well, pad thai, I love pad thai. Right, the pad thai comes to the table and Andrew, it's sitting in front of Andrew, so he has first serve, right? He takes 90% of the pad thai and scrapes it onto his plate, right? right? Imagine that, right? Now, I know gluttony is a sin, right? <laughs> I'm very aware of that, so I confront Andrew with his sin, right? Uh, well, I don't think so. This might be a, a time where love covers a multitude of sins. You know, it's, uh, you see, if we, if we were to confront every sin in that way, this whole weekend we just spend the whole time going around to each other's rooms and knocking on each other's doors. You know, you may not realise you've probably forgotten, but you know, hey, three years ago you sinned against me in this way. You know, we we'd be exhausted at the end of the weekend just perpetually on this roundabout of knocking on each other's doors. We could, of course, we are all sinful. And we all fail to treat each other properly. So contextually, what's going on here in Matthew chapter 18? I know that all sin is destructive of our relationship with God, and yet the sort of context here in Matthew chapter 18 is the the sin that threatens our relationship with God. It's uh, the sin that is destructive in a profound way of our fellowship. That, that seems to me the, the way in which it's spoken of in terms of causing little ones to stumble. Um, your hand causing you to sin will cut it off. It's the, the sin that destroys you, the, the persistent sin that, uh, that seems to cut you off from a relationship with God's people. We need wisdom, actually, to work out what they are. And you need a commitment when it comes to confronting other people. Not to yourself when you are wronged. For in Matthew 18, you understand the commitment is to the other person who has wronged you. Isn't that profoundly different? It's not about my hurt, it's about their salvation. That's what's on view, and your concern for them. There are two of the, uh, the buts that get raised. The Another one gets raised when you read Matthew chapter 18 is uh, don't we make ourselves a, a doormat? Doesn't make, this make me an easy target when it comes... If, if people know that I'm going to forgive them 490 times, couldn't they use me, you know? Um, you know, say, yeah, I get Patrick out, out the front here. Don't you stay there, Patrick? Right? And he comes out the front and I say, yeah, Patrick, I want to tell you, man, you've been annoying me, right? So I just sort of go, poof, right? And he collapses on the ground, Okay. And he sort of staggers to his feet. As he's staggering up, right, Andrew Cheer says, I forgive you, brother. And I say, thank you, Andrew. And I go, boof, right? And he claps his hand, right? 490 times, right? Patrick, you boof. Get 
going to boof, get up, boof. You know, shot. this can't be Christian, surely, you know. <laughs> Especially at Smack Ago Conference, never, never before happened, okay. Can't you, I mean, can't you get taken advantage of in this sort of way? I live in a, not live in, but I work at a church that's right in the middle of town. As a result, we have a lot of people who come onto our site asking for money on a fairly regular basis. I want to tell you, I've been there 22 years. I've heard the best stories on the face of the planet from people who've come asking for money. Uh, very elaborate stories at times. I generally got to the stage where I don't tend to give out money. You know, but from time to time, I hear such a good story. I think, it must be true. You kind of made that up. Surely, so I'll give them some money. Every time I've given somebody money, they have always promised me that they will come back and give me the money the next week or as soon as they get their welfare payment or whatever. Okay? Now, I don't know how many times I've done that over the year. Maybe 50 or 60 times, maybe. How many people do you reckon have come back and repaid the money out of those 50 people? None! <laughs> now... I must just be gullible. I've been taken advantage of all those times. Let me say it's easy over time uh, when you're taken advantage of uh, to build up sort of bitterness, anger, even cynicism in the face of people's sin against you. But my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called upon to reflect the heart of God and the heart of God is as expressed in this parable. Not, not gullible or foolish. It actually doesn't help anyone if you let them sin against you. But again, that's because you have a concern for them. Do you understand what I'm saying? That is, people will frequently sin against you. And if you know someone is going to, most likely to sin against you, you don't let them because it's not good for them. But insofar as you are concerned, it isn't such a big deal if people sin against you? You're not the fragile one. You're actually not the one who is vulnerable. How often, friends, should you forgive your brother and sister in Christ? Never stop. Never stop. That's the point here. Another yes but that comes up in relation to this passage is, well... It's all very well, Paul, but if you read this passage in context, which you really should because you're a minister, uh, you'll see that it's talking to Christians and their relationships with each other, not with Christians and non-Christians. So is it different with non-Christians? You know, we don't have to forgive them in quite the same way. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, same, same gospel, verse 44. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that they may be sons of your Father in heaven. Friends, it's a different relationship, but I take it it's exactly the same principle in terms of the way in which we forgive and we deal with people. When you go to Matthew 18, when people say, oh yeah, but, when you get to the end of this process of the way in which you deal with your brother, remember you're supposed to deal with them like a pagan or a tax collector? Come back to uh, Matthew 18 with me, look at it. And so it gets to the end. If he refuses 
to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And then he goes on to say, never, never stop forgiving. So how do you put this together? Because it seems to be a process and suddenly you chop them off, yet you go on the rest of the parable and you never stop forgiving. How do you think that works? Let me ask you a different question. What do you think it means to treat someone like a pagan or a tax collector? Just throw out a couple of ideas for me, okay? Let me give you the two possibilities that people normally run with. Most people normally go to, um, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where there's a man who is living with basically his his, uh, father's wife in a sexually immoral behaviour and Paul says, cast him out. Deal with him, you know, like remove him from your fellowship. And people say, I think that's what Jesus is saying here pagan or tax collector, remove him from your fellowship. I don't think it's saying that. Come with me back to chapter 9 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Verse 9. I want to look with you at how Jesus treats a tax collector. Verse 9, Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now on hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, we then go to Matthew chapter 18 and we're told, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What does it mean? It means you should eat with them. I think that's the logical conclusion, actually, when you read through Matthew's Gospel, because that's the way Jesus persistently treated uh, the, the pagans and the tax collectors. He ate with them. See, what's the point here in Matthew chapter 18? The point is that you do not want one of these little ones to fall away. And if they persist in sin, then they're at risk of falling away. And if you go through this process one-on-one, group-on-one, church-on-one, and they still fail to repent, you need to treat them like someone who is an unbeliever and evangelise them. so that they might come into the kingdom. That's the goal of it. That's what you do. With the non-Christians, it's not that different, I don't think, from the Christians. Let me move from principle to practice. That's the third point on the outline. Principle to practice. It seems to me the principle here about forgiveness is straightforward. What is the principle? Forgive. How often do you forgive? Well, you never stop. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? None of us are having trouble with the concept. But the practice is actually much tougher because most of us have had things happen to us where we feel 
like we've tried to forgive, like we genuinely feel like we've tried to do that, and even thought we'd done it, and then the anger flares, the bitterness comes back. And we think, well, have we really? So I want to spend a few moments on the how of forgiveness, putting the principles into practice. First thing I want to concentrate on is the the whole idea of working on our motives. And I think this is really, really important, working on our motives. There are lots of uh, both secular and Christian books that have been written over the last 15 to 20 years on forgiveness. It's become a really hot sort of topic, even for those who aren't Christian believers, this question of forgiveness. Many of these books, they emphasise, even the Christian ones, the psychological benefits of forgiveness. That is, they emphasise our suffering and the personal peace that we can have if we are released from bitterness. Uh, The freedom, even the health benefits that flow from not storing up our anger and our unforgiveness. They tend to all sort of move in that sort of direction. And I have a lot of sympathy with some of the practical conclusions that they come to. See, if a, a man is a workaholic in his job, is that driven by the fact that he had an unrelenting father who told him he never amount to anything and he's just spent his whole life trying to prove him wrong? Does he need to somehow deal with his relationship with his father and forgive him in order to move past that? Or maybe a woman who's in her mid-30s and finding herself... Um, sexually freezing up with her husband? Does she need to deal with the abuse, sexual abuse that was committed to her by her own father? Uh, Maybe she does in order to be freed to relate properly. And yet what I want to say to you is that when you come to the Bible, it isn't the psychological benefits that are emphasised as the motivation for forgiving. It's not our own well-being that's on view. Look at the reasons. The first one is, chapter 18, verse 35 of Matthew, it's actually so we'll be forgiven. See, we're told if we don't forgive, we'll be judged by God. That's one of the motives that put forward to us. And the other motive that's... uh, that's really emphasised here in this parable is the fact that we should forgive because we realise the extent to which we have been forgiven ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, uh, we're told, forgive each other just as God in Christ forgave you. Here in this parable, Matthew chapter 18, it's... It's not just a parable about the fact that we've been forgiven and therefore should forgive. The extent of the forgiveness is what makes this parable so unique. I don't know if you picked it up in the details, but if you look at verse 24 of uh, Matthew chapter 18, it says, A man owed his master 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. That just rolls off the tongue, really. 10,000 talents, you know. It doesn't sound like much, not that we use talents these days. You know, pull out your wallet, you know, hand over a few notes, uh, put it on plastic, not a big deal, 10,000 talents. Friends, 10,000 talents 
was enough to pay 10,000 men their wages for 17 years. We are talking about billions and billions of dollars. That's the debt that's on view here. And this man, this servant, he could never hope to repay that debt. And that is the point of this parable. Every one of us has an outstanding debt to God that we can never deal with. It is just overwhelming in its proportions. Impossible to cancel. And the cutting edge point is, no matter what someone does in sinning against you, it pales into insignificance by comparison with what God has forgiven you for. That is the reality. And I don't say that lightly uh, because I know there will be people in this room who have been sinned against in, in, horrific, in horrific ways. It can't help but be the case with a group this size. I don't want to diminish the way in which you've been sinned against or to be trite when it comes to the offence that's occurred to you. But what I do want to say is that actually it is in reality still small by comparison with the vastness of the forgiveness that God has shown you in his son. That's the point of this parable. Friends, if you have trouble forgiving, then here are two motivations that will help you. The warning about judgment and to remember the huge debt that you have been forgiven by God. Second thing, though, by way of application, moving into the how of forgiveness, I want to talk about the, the feelings we have that are associated with our failure to forgive. And ask whether those feelings are, are enemies or whether they're friends. You know what I mean, don't you? The, um, the anger, the hurt, uh, the reaction to people that you have when they've sinned against you and you feel like, like it's... It's been dealt with. And you say, surely if I dealt with this, if I'd properly forgiven, surely I wouldn't feel this way when I see them. And if I do feel this way, does it mean that I haven't forgiven them at all? Can I suggest to you that the feeling is not a problem? The feeling is not a problem. It is what you do with the feeling that counts. We need to distinguish between thoughts and plans on the one hand and feelings on the other Um, I could feel attracted to another woman apart from Sue okay is that feeling wrong or is it just a reality of my interaction with people in this world is it only a problem if my feeling is acted on either at the level of the way in which I think, if I move into adulterous thoughts, or if I actually enact adultery in my behaviour. See, it seems to me that feelings are actually normal responses to life and to people. Uh, we, We feel all sorts of different things in relation to all sorts of different stimuli in our life. And being aware of our feelings and trying to work out why we feel things in a certain way is very important. If we act on our feelings inappropriately, 
or if we try and hide or suppress our feelings, then it seems to me that that's when we actually get ourselves into trouble and we're likely to be led into sin. See, say someone gossips about me. I'm a pastor of a fairly big church. It happens reasonably often, actually. Uh, and then someone eventually gossips and tells me what the other gossiper said. You know, it's sort of a nice little ring that happens. And when I see the person who's been gossiping about me, I feel angry. Now, I might forgive them and uh, try and sort out that relationship. And then I might see them again, say, another week or two later. And I still feel angry. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means I feel hurt. I guess I feel disappointed, especially if it's been a friend. And I reckon I've got two choices at that point. I can either dwell on my hurt, I can feed it, I can plot revenge, you know, I can, I can, I can act on it inappropriately, or I can tackle it. I think it's a bit like the weeds in my garden. You know, the, uh, you don't have many big gardens here in, uh, in Malaysia, I don't think. In Adelaide we have big backyards, we have gardens. And what I find is if I let the weeds grow in my garden, if I de- deal with them straight away, I have less trouble with the next crop of weeds. You know, if I pull up the weeds straight away and deal with them, the next time, I, if I deal with them really quickly, after a while the weeds don't give me much trouble. And I think it's like that with anger and feelings towards people. Deal with them quickly and do not let them sort of fester in the garden of your mind or your soul in order that you might actually not allow them to develop into sin. See, the feelings alert you to different things. And the final thing is this, when it comes to putting things into practice, this whole process of forgiveness, is it self-centred or sinner-centred? Self-centred or sinner-centred? See, when someone sins against us, it is so easy to become self-focused. We all know this. I have been sinned against. The wrong thing has been done to me. I am hurt. Brothers and sisters in Christ, join with me in demonising the sinner. Okay? Let's form a party. People against that person over there. They hurt me. You know? that, it's so easy, isn't it, to do that and to get into that mindset. But you know, I think a mark of real Christian maturity is being able to forgive not only quickly but to actually be more concerned for the person who sins against you than you are for yourself. A mark of Christian maturity is to be more concerned for the person who sins than you are for the person who has sinned against. Now let me say, that is a big ask but I take it that's actually what's going on here in Matthew chapter 18. When you sin against, you go and confront your brother. Give him a real spray. Why do you go and confront your brother? Verse 15. Because if he repents, you've won your brother. The reason you go and see him is because it's for his benefit, not yours. That's the whole point of it. When you say your brother doesn't listen to you, and you've got to take some people along with you, right, to talk to your brother about his sin, who do you take with you? Okay? Your biggest, meanest, 
thug like friends so you can intimidate this person. You know, people will sort of stand in the background going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. You take along the people that you think this brother in Christ respects as people who are mature in Christ and who he will listen to. Not your friends, the person who will help him most repent. You see? It's sinner-centred rather than with you. The other thing is that sin does have its consequences even if uh, you forgive somebody. But I'm going to come back to that tomorrow so I won't deal with that now. Let me wrap it together. You've been really patient but this is such important stuff, isn't it? Working through the whole nature of forgiveness. If we're new people, if we're new people in Christ, we will be forgiving people. No question about it. In 1997, uh, one of the uh, shootings in a school in Kentucky in the USA occurred. A student, he was 14 years old, he took a 22 calibre pistol into this school and he came across a group of students who were meeting together. He shot three of them dead and five were injured. One of the injured girls was a girl called Melissa Jenkins. She was 15 years old. She was in that group of uh, students when this this other boy came across them. They are actually having a prayer meeting. It was a Christian group meeting together. The bullet that he fired didn't kill her. It went into her spine and made her a paraplegic. So 15 years old, a week after the accident, she was told she would never walk again. And she told one of her friends to pass a message to the boy who had shot her. And the message was, tell him I forgive him. Extraordinary thing for a 15 year old to do, I think. Is it that surprising? Some things I think are a, a contradiction in terms. Contradiction by definition. You know, a square circle, a rich pauper, Australia winning the Soccer World Cup. You know, some things just aren't going to happen, really, uh, as much as I'd like to think they would. Let me give you another contradiction in terms. A Christian who will not forgive. A Christian who will not forgive. Friends, that is an offence to the name of Christ. For anyone who knows what it means to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus, given our sin before our great God and his holiness, to withhold forgiveness, that's a blasphemy. God takes it extraordinarily seriously. And can I say that tonight, I will be stunned if we haven't spent the last three quarters of an hour talking about this topic and you are not aware of the way in which you struggle with this matter and maybe there are particular people that have come to your mind and you know that you have withheld forgiveness from them maybe even from someone who has desired to repent to you and you push them away and can I say you have two choices at this point You can give up the faith or you can forgive them. That's the blunt way in which Jesus puts it before us. This is profoundly important 
And if there are issues there just festering away, can I encourage you as strongly as I know how to deal with them and to be thankful to God that you're here this weekend and you have the space to actually take the time to do it. It is vital. What I'd like to do now is just just pause really for a minute or two so you can actually do business with God yourself. Because maybe God has prompted you, prompted your heart, prompted your mind with things that you know you should be dealing with. Uh, I want to give you the chance to pray to God by yourself and then I'll um, I'll wrap things together by, by praying for us at the end. So just take a couple of minutes to do that, won't you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the extraordinary forgiveness you have shown us in the Lord Jesus. Father, we know that we are those 10,000 talent debtors to you and yet you have cleared the debt. And Father, we pray that the profound knowledge of your mercy and grace towards us will empower us, overshadow us and convict us of the need to be forgiving those around us who sin against us, whether they be brothers or sisters in Christ, often uh, the most difficult uh, to deal with in a way because they are close, uh, people we trust. Uh, Father, we pray that within our fellowship you'll give us the ability to be uh, not adopting lousy strategies and just avoiding each other, cutting each other out, but rather dealing with sin as it arises and having the profound depth of your forgiveness flowing in our relationships. And Father, we also pray in our relationships with outsiders, those who have put their trust in your Son. Father, give us the, the willingness to forgive when they just work out their sinfulness in our direction. And Father, give us that heart that desires that they should repent and come and turn to you. Help them to be just like the Lord Jesus who uh, continues to engage with and have fellowship with those sort of people. Uh, dinner table fellowship company in order that they might hear of your love and mercy. Father, you know that uh, for some of us we've been hurt badly and uh, we find it so hard uh, just to let go of the hurt and the pain. Uh, Give us a wisdom to know how we can do it. Uh, Father, provide us with the support and encouragement that we need and help us, Father, to forgive from the heart just as we have been forgiven. And Father, we pray you'll be gracious to us and flood us with the knowledge of both your mercy and your love and your grace and that that will extend into the people we know. Father, be at work in us and through us, we pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.